0: sermon, I want to bring maybe a little bit of clarification from last week's sermon. Last week's sermon, as you know, was a little difficult as we talked about what we as a church need to be doing in order to protect our religious liberties in light of what the Supreme Court may be doing at the end of this month in regards to gay marriage. And we talked about um, membership policies, and we talked about marriage policies, and we talked about our, our statement of faith and all these types of things. And, and the last thing I wanted to communicate, the last thing I want to communicate, and hopefully it'll make sense this morning, is that somehow we as Emmanuel hate gay people. That's not, where we're, that's not where we wanted to land last week. That's not where we're coming off as a church. We want to be accepting of those. Anybody that walks through those doors that has any sin in their life, we want to be a safe place where people can struggle with sin, and we want to minister the gospel so that people can repent and believe and have faith in Christ and receive redemption. And so no matter what sin anybody struggles with, we want everybody to be walking through those doors. We're just saying when it comes to membership and when it comes to marriage— we're drawing the line when it comes to those issues, that we're making a um, line in the sand that, that if you want to become a member of Emmanuel or you want to be married and you're in a same-sex relationship, we're just saying that does not agree with where our scripture, uh, what we believe the scripture says. And so we're not saying that you can't come or be a part of it or, or if you're here and you struggle with same-sex um, issues that, that you're not welcome. We don't want that ever to be the case. We want to welcome you and we want you to be here. We just want you to know that all of us need repentance and all of us need the gospel and hopefully that'll make more sense as we go through the scripture this morning in 2nd Timothy and so if you have questions about last week's sermon or you you want to know a little bit more we're going to have some town hall meetings here in the near future uh, to talk about these types of issues as a church. One of my great heroes of church history um, because he wrote one of my favorite books in church history the writer of Pilgrim's Progress is John Bunyan. And I don't know if you know the story about John Bunyan, but in the 1600s, he was a Baptist pastor. And he was a young man who got saved in a Baptist church, and he began preaching, preaching the gospel. Now, he was preaching the gospel at a time when it was illegal to be a Baptist in England. It was illegal to preach the gospel unless you were licensed by the Church of England, by the Anglican Church. Now, he had married a young wife, and he was 30 years old when she died. Left him four children under the age of 10, a daughter who was blind. He later remarried Elizabeth. But in 1660, with these small children, one, a special needs daughter that had blindness, he was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was thrown in jail in Bedford, England. He spent 12 years in jail and he was given numerous opportunities to recant and to just say, John Bunyan, if you just recant, if you just change your views, if you just go against your conscience, we'll let you out of jail because you don't want to stay here for 12 years, especially if you have a special needs daughter at home and you've got a a wife taking care of these small children. Just recant, John Bunyan. Listen to his own words of what he said. Quote, I have determined, the Almighty God being my help and shield, yet to suffer, if frail life might continue so long, even till moss shall grow on my eyebrows rather than violate my faith and principles. Basically, he says, I'm going to rot in this prison with moss growing on my eyeballs or my eyebrows before I violate my conscience. Now, 12 years later, he was let out of jail. And he preached for a while, and then three years later, he was put in jail again. <laughs> so he had to go back to jail a second time. He was only there for six months, and then they finally released him from jail. Now, some of us would look at that and say, John Bunyan, you're not a very good father because you allowed yourself to be imprisoned for 12 years while you had a wife at home struggling with small children. Wouldn't you just recant? Wouldn't you just violate your conscience so you could go back and be a good dad and take care of your family? Most of us in America will look at that and say, why spend 12 years in prison for something you believed in? But you see, John Bunyan was not, willing to, was not willing to give up on what he believed the gospel said. He was willing to suffer for the gospel. He was willing to suffer for the gospel, which brings up a very important question this morning. Are you personally, personally willing to suffer for the gospel? Or are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you willing to suffer for the gospel? In light of what I spoke about last week, in light of what the government may be cramming down our throats or what the Supreme Court may vote or whatever happens in our nation, there will be certain pressures upon us as Christians, certain pressures upon us as a church for our obedience to the gospel. And there will be a strong temptation, hear me loud and clear, there will be a strong temptation for many of us to be ashamed of the gospel, to waffle on the gospel, to get soft on the gospel, to maybe get discouraged or deflated as we stand strong for the gospel. And this is nothing new. Timothy here in in 2 Timothy, he was a young pastor who was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And so Paul addressed the issue to Timothy. Now, Paul understood suffering. You see, Paul wrote Second Timothy from prison. Paul was in a Roman prison at the end of his life, just hours maybe before he was beheaded by Nero. And these are the last words that Paul writes. Really, this is the last book that Paul wrote. It's not in order in the New Testament, but it's the last letter he wrote to Timothy, who was a young pastor who was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And so today, we need to hear Paul's encouragement to Timothy more than ever. So let's pick up in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Let's listen to Paul's words from prison to Timothy, this young pastor. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. "...for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace." Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's an interesting structure in this passage of Scripture. In verses 6 and 7, Paul starts with this whole idea of God did not give us a spirit, of timidity it starts with the holy spirit and then down in verses 14 he says by the holy spirit who dwells within you so it's almost like this sandwich technique where on the front end Paul starts with the Holy Spirit. On the tail end, he brings back the Holy Spirit. And inside the sandwich, if you will, on both pieces of bread, he unpacks what it looks like to not be ashamed of the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit is crucial to this passage of Scripture. So here's the main point of this entire passage of Scripture. Here's Paul's point. The Holy Spirit will empower you when you suffer for the gospel. The Holy Spirit will empower you when you suffer for the gospel. And what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to give five realities or five truths or five things that we need to know about how the Holy Spirit does that. In light of this culture in which we live, where there's going to be a temptation to suffer for the gospel, how does the Holy Spirit empower us? So here's the first truth. It's in verses 6 and 7. The Holy Spirit empowers you to be bold in your faith. Notice what Paul tells Timothy in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I want to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is yours through the laying on of my hands. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to remember back to that time where you were called to ministry and the elders of the church came and they, they laid their hands upon you confirming the fact that you were uh, anointed of God, that you were ordained of God, and I want you to remember back to that time and I want you to, to fan into flame that gift and I want you to realize the role of the Holy Spirit. God did not give us a spirit of fear. God didn't give us a spirit of cowardice. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Because you see, this young Timothy was hesitant. He was a young pastor. He, he was unsure of his role in the church, and there were pressures from all sides on him, and he needed to have courage. He needed to have courage. And so the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, I've given you not a spirit of cowardice, not of timidity, not of being of jellyfish, but I've given you a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. Now, there's going to be a temptation in our culture to be cowardly, to be hesitant, to be timid. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit's not given us that spirit. He's given us a spirit of, of power. Now, not of rudeness, not of meanness, but of boldness. Boldness to stand strong and not be timid in our faith. Paul even prays for this. It's amazing that Paul had to pray for this. You think about Paul. He was the most bold guy that ever lived, I think. Anybody want to go witnessing with Paul? He probably will be like, let's just go for it. But here's what Paul prays in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. He says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And here's his prayer request. And pray also for me. What's his prayer? That words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Twice Paul says, I want you to pray for me that I can." when I open my mouth, I'm going to boldly proclaim the gospel. Let me just be real honest this morning we live in a culture of cowards. We live in a culture of cowards, especially men. I'm going to call out men this morning, okay? It's very rare to see men standing for truth and standing for justice and standing for godliness against the stream of this culture. Now, when I say standing for truth and when I say being, being, being a man, I'm not talking about being a hate monger. I'm not talking about yelling. I'm not talking about stomping really hard or issuing idle threats or being a lot of what you see on television. Let's just be real honest. A lot of the talking heads that we see on Fox News and other places, they're just blowhards. They like to hear themselves talk. All talk and no action. I'm talking about men of God who stood for for things that are important. Where are the William Wilberforces of our day? Where's the Martin Luther King Juniors of our day? Where's Martin Luther in our day? You know, I love Martin Luther. He's one of my favorite figures from church history. And in October 35th of 1517, he goes and nails his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And he basically launches the Protestant Reformation. He he gets in the face uh, of the Roman Catholic papacy for their selling indulgences and says, listen, we need to get back to the scriptures. And he was labeled a heretic. And they called him in 1521 to appear before what was called the Diet of Worms. Now, the Diet of Worms is not when you eat worms as your diet. The Diet of Worms was a tribunal that they called Martin Luther in front of where he had the emperor, he had the pope. Everybody was staring down upon him, asking him to recant his views. And here's what Martin Luther says in his own words as he's standing there. He says these famous words. He says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. The famous words of Luther. Here I stand. I'm not going to go against scripture. My conscience is bound by the holy word of God. I will not recant. Here I stand. He stood strong in the face of opposition. He could have backed down, but he had backbone. And my prayer is God would raise up more Larton Luthers. God would raise up more William Wilberforces. God would raise up more Martin Luther King Jr.'s. Men and women of God who are willing to have backbone and stand for truth in a culture that doesn't need cowards but needs men and women who will stand up and be powerful for God. Here's the second reality that Paul addresses here. In the face of cultural pressure, there will be the temptation for you to be ashamed of the gospel. There will be a temptation for you to be ashamed of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, Timothy was in a hard spot. Timothy's a young pastor, and his mentor's in jail. Paul's in jail. And Timothy could have thought this. You know what? That's good for Paul. Paul's kind of radical anyway. And if Paul's in jail for being radical, Paul, let Paul kind of rot in jail. But I don't really want to associate with Paul because he's too radical. As a matter of fact, let me just kind of distance myself from Paul. Let me just kind of be soft on the gospel. Let me just kind of blend in with the culture. And, and Paul can deal with his own stuff because Paul's radical. But I don't, I don't want to suffer for the gospel. I may be ashamed of the gospel. I, don't, I may be ashamed of Paul for standing up for the gospel. And Paul says to Timothy, don't do that. Do not be ashamed of the testimony don't be ashamed of of who jesus is and don't be ashamed of me as prisoner don't be ashamed but share in that suffering the gospel by its very nature hear this the gospel by its very nature means you will suffer because here's the truth if you're not sharing the true gospel then you're probably not suffering for the gospel you're probably preaching a different gospel See, why are we so prone to be ashamed of the gospel? What's, what about the gospel makes us want to be ashamed of it? Well, let's just stop and think about the gospel for a moment. It's offensive, it's bloody. It's exclusive, and what does the gospel do? The gospel tells men and women of our culture, you are helpless, you are hopeless, and you're hell-bound, and you are in need of a Savior. So it's a direct salt to people's autonomy. It's a direct salt to their pride, to their individualism, to their need. The gospel is an offense to lost people, and so we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to have anybody feel uncomfortable, and so it's easy for us just to say, you know what? I'm not going to address your need because, you know, I'm just kind of, I don't want to go down that path. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 1 says. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly. The Greek word there is moronic, really. The word of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Uh, The cross is stupid and offensive to the world. And Paul even goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, through 24, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And what is Christ crucified? It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says the gospel is an offense. The gospel is a stumbling block. The gospel is going to divide. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones has said. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, You cannot remain neutral in the presence of the cross. It has always divided mankind, and it still does. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is either an offense to us, or else it is the thing above everything else in which we glory. There can never be a more important question than this. What does the cross do to you? There are only two options, offense or glory. Glory. If the gospel we preach does not by its nature offend, we are not preaching the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about being rude. I'm not talking about being hateful. I'm not talking about being annoying. I'm talking about the message. The message of the gospel by its very nature is, is offensive because it's going to cut people to exactly where they need to be cut and expose their weakness, expose their sin, expose their guilt, and expose the fact that they're accountable to their creator. And Paul says to Timothy, listen, I'm in prison suffering for this gospel. And you're a young pastor, and there's going to be a temptation as a young pastor to not want to preach the gospel. You're going to want to soft pedal and back pedal on the gospel. You're not going to want to be strong on the gospel. Timothy, don't do that. Don't be ashamed of it. In fact, what I'm asking you to do is to share in the suffering of the gospel. And it's always been that way. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say maybe. might be. It says will be. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. None of us by nature, likes to suffer. All of us, by human nature, don't want to be inconvenienced. We want to have all of our ducks in a row. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be inconvenienced in any way possible. We just want to kind of cruise through life without causing any waves. But let me just be honest with you. In the coming days, if we're going to stand for truth, you can't have that attitude it's going to get rocky, it's going to get choppy, it's going to get difficult, it's going to get um, scary maybe, and there's going to be a temptation to just say, you know what, I'm just going to kind of be ashamed of the gospel, and I don't want to suffer, I don't want to be inconvenienced, I don't want to have to be uncomfortable for what I believe, let me just kind of blend in with culture, but you know what Jesus said, listen to what Jesus himself said, Listen to what Jesus promised. This is a great promise of Jesus. We're always big on the promises of Jesus. Well, listen to this promise. John fifteen eighteen through 20. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The year was 155 A.D. This was the intense persecution of the church. And what the Roman Empire was doing was they were rounding up Christians and they were telling them that you need to go to the temple and you need to take a pinch of incense and go onto to the altar and you need to bow down and you need to praise Caesar as Lord and God. Now if you're a Christian, you do not praise anybody as Lord and God besides Jesus. And so there was this old 86-year-old pastor And this old 86-year-old pastor was actually mentored by the Apostle John. And his church says, you need to go into hiding. They're after you. You need to go into hiding. So he goes and hides out in a barn. And the Roman soldiers come, and he's ready for the Roman soldiers, so he welcomes them in says, come on in, guys. I know you're going to arrest me, but before you arrest me, can can we have a meal together? And they're like, what? Sits them down, says, let's let's have a meal. He begins to pray for them, shares the gospel with them, and says, I know you're going to arrest me. Can I just have an hour to pray before you arrest me? And they're like, why in the world is this 86-year-old man a threat? I mean, he gave us a free meal, and he wants to pray. So they arrest him, and they bring him before the tribunal. They bring him before the authorities. And they tell this old pastor, you need to recant. You need to curse Christ. You need to deny Christ. You need to deny your faith. You need to denounce Jesus. And listen to what this 86-year-old man said. For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And they kept over and over again getting him to recant, getting him to recant, getting him to renounce Christ. And finally, this is what he said right before they burned him to the stake. As he's burning to the stake, this is what his dying words were. Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you've deemed me worthy of this moment so that with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. Who was this old pastor? Maybe you've heard of him. His name's Polycarp. He's the first great martyr of the early church. 86-year-old pastor. Listen, I've served Jesus for 86 years. You're not going to get me to recant him now. I'll burn at the stake before I recant Jesus. Now, that's intense persecution. Probably none of us here are going to be burnt at the stake and asked to recant Jesus, maybe. But the question is, do you have that same attitude as Polycarp? Do you have that same attitude? I've served Jesus. He's my Lord, and I would never be ashamed of Him. Here's the third truth. The gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're talking about the gospel here. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Suffer for the gospel. Well, then the question is, well, what's the gospel? What is it? Is it just kind of... Rules to live by. What is the gospel? Paul defines it here for us in verses 9 and 10. He gives us the content of the gospel. What is the gospel that we're not to be ashamed of? Well, there's four aspects here in verses 9 and 10 that Paul breaks it down for us. The content of the gospel. Well, let's look at the first one. It's the process of the gospel. What's the process? How does God do it? Well, God sovereignly called us to salvation. Look at verse 9. Who saved us and called us salvation involves God calling us sovereignly out of darkness into his life, saving us by calling us to himself. And so the process God uses to save us is to call us to himself. At a point in time, the Holy Spirit called you to himself. The Holy Spirit took out that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He opened your blind eyes and he showed you the beauty of Christ and he called you to Jesus. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of people use this verse as a blank check to say, you know, everything works out good for everybody. Who's the qualifier of who this works out for? All things work out for good for who? Only those who love God and those who've been called. So thus, this verse only applies to Christians. And we as Christians are called the called, the ones who've been called. So the process God does in saving us as he calls us to himself. But there's also a purpose. Why? Well, we've been saved to be holy. That's the purpose. Notice what Paul says there in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why did God save us? Why did God call us? He called us to set us apart to be holy, to be his people. Romans 8.29 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so even Paul says there, and at the end of verse nine, when did God do this? God gave us this grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So, before time and eternity passed, when God chose us for salvation, when God predestined us for salvation, His plan in doing that was that we would be holy. We would be holy. We would be conformed to the image of Christ. That was God's purpose. And he says that in Ephesians 1, 4-5. Here Paul says this was done before the ages. In Ephesians 1, 4-5, Paul just says God did it before the creation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so here's why God saved you. Not so that you could say this. I hear a lot of Christians say this. God could. Here's what a lot of Christians say. Okay, God saved me. God loved me. God gave me the truth. Now I've got fire insurance. I know I'm not going to go to hell because God saved me. i am loved to be forgiven. Now I'm going to go live however I want. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter if there's repentance. It doesn't matter if there's holiness. It doesn't matter if there's transformation. I'm going to live however I want because after all, God loves to save. I love to sin. It's a great relationship. And Paul says, no. The reason you were saved, the reason you were called, the reason you were chosen is to be holy, to have a life that's different, a life that's transformed, a life that looks like Jesus. So the process was he called you, The purpose is to be holy, but what's the plan? How does it all work out? Well, God saved us by his grace alone, not by our works. Notice what he says there again in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling not. Why did God save us? It was not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's the heart of the gospel. God is not obligated to save you. God does not have to save you. God is not bound to save you. There's nothing you can do to make God save you. There's no type of work you can do. You can't be spiritual enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't do the Ten Commandments enough. You can't give enough money to the poor. There's nothing you can do to get God to accept you no matter how hard you try. God simply says, I'm going to save you because I want to save you and it's going to be by a free gift of grace. I'm going to shower you with grace. You don't deserve it. You you can't earn it. As a matter of fact, what you do deserve is hell. What you do deserve is wrath. And if I were to be a just God, I'd give that to you. But I'm not going to give that to you. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you forgiveness as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Paul says here, it's not because of our works. In Ephesians, not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. You can't be good enough to get in God's good graces. You have to receive it as a free gift of grace. So the process in salvation, God calls us. The purpose in salvation, to be holy. The plan of salvation, it's not by works but by grace, but ultimately, number four, the person. Jesus Christ is the Savior who died and rose again so that we could have eternal life. Notice how Paul focuses in on the person who accomplished all of this at the end of verse 9, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And what did our Savior, Christ Jesus, do? He abolished death. How did he abolish death? He died on the cross and rose again. What did he do? He brought life and immortality. He brought eternal life to us through the gospel. So through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has given us eternal life. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. So here's the issue we need to hear loud and clear as a church. We all need the gospel. We all need the gospel. Every single one of you that have walked through this door have issues in your life. You've got sin, you've got baggage, you've got iniquity, you've got problems, you've got hang-ups, whatever you want to call it. The Bible calls it sin. We all have sin, and we all need the gospel. Some people may struggle with homosexual desire. Some people may struggle with gossip. Some people may struggle with internet pornography. Some may struggle with anger. Some may struggle with heterosexual lust. Some may struggle with backbiting or unforgiveness or alcoholism, or gambling. All of us have sin in our lives. And as a church, we never want to get to the point where we point the finger at others and say, you've got sin, we don't, we're better. We want to be the type of people that say, we are all sinners. And by the grace of God, he's transformed me. He's brought repentance in my life. He's given me hope. And I've changed because of the freedom that God has given me. My chains are gone. And so we want to be a church where people can come and they can hear the gospel, they can struggle with sin, they're not going to be judged, they're going to hear that there's hope in the gospel and that we can tell them there is freedom in the gospel, there's freedom in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, you don't have to stay the way you are, you can repent, you can turn, you can change, and you can experience transformation. And every single one of us in this room needs that. Don't ever get to the point where you're arrogant and think that you don't need the gospel, that you don't need salvation. We don't want to be arrogant. We want to be humble and repentant. And let me just say this. There's nobody in this room right now that's so far gone. There's nobody in this room right now that sinned so bad that the mighty hand of God can't reach down into your situation and save you out of that. There may be some of you that walked in this room today and think, you know what? I've sinned so bad. I've done something so wicked. God could never love me. I'm so beyond hope. Let me give you the hope of the gospel. Nobody here is beyond hope God can save the worst of sinners, whether that's a homosexual, whether that's a gambler, whether that's an idolater, whether that's an alcoholic, or whether that's a straight-laced, blue-collar, fox-watching news, conservative Republican legalist. That may describe some of you. I don't know. Regardless of who you are here, you need the gospel, and all of us need the gospel. Here's reality number four. Have confidence in God's power to sustain you to the final day. Notice what Paul says. How can Paul not be ashamed of the gospel? Paul's rotting in jail. Paul's awaiting to be beheaded by Nero. How can Paul say, you know what, Timothy? I fought the good fight. I'm confident that God's going to get me through this. Well, let's look at verses 11 and 12. How does Paul answer that? Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. I'm suffering as I do. I'm suffering for being an apostle. I'm suffering for proclaiming the gospel. But notice what he says. But I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. Paul has this firm confidence that God's going to sustain him until that day. That's the day when Jesus Christ comes back. But I want to give you just a little Greek lesson here real quick. When Paul says, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced, when he says I'm believed and I'm convinced, that's in a tense in the Greek language that really means it's a solid, permanent, lasting, wholehearted confidence. Confidence. Paul has gotten to that point in his life where he says, listen, I have a wholehearted confidence, I have a wholehearted faith, I have this firm trust, I have this belief, I have this confidence that God is able to guard what he's entrusted to me. Now we have to ask the question, what has God entrusted to Paul? God has entrusted to Paul the message of the gospel. And Paul says, listen, I'm going to suffer for proclaiming this gospel, I'm going to suffer for telling people this gospel, but one thing I'm sure of, no matter what happens in this life, God's going to get me to the end. I may suffer in jail, Nero may behead me, but one thing I do know on that final day when I see Jesus face to face, I will see the smile of my Savior because I've been faithful to the gospel and He's been faithful to me to get me to that day. I'm convinced that my Savior is able to sustain me to that day. And it's the same for you and me. God is powerful to sustain you when you get weak, when you want to give up, when you want to waffle on the gospel when you're tempted to go soft on the gospel, when you're tempted to kind of go with the crowd, when you're tempted to be ashamed with the gospel, when you falter, when you fail, when you get weak, when you get tired, when you say, you know what, I just want to give up. The, the, the gospel of Christ says that God is able and powerful to sustain you to the end. You need to be thoroughly convinced of this because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be real honest here. It's going to get tiring. In the days to come, it's going to get tiring to hold fast to the gospel it's going to get tiring. It's going to get tricky. It's going to be, it's the, the, the persecution is going to get intense. It, there's going to be a lot of temptations. And if we're not looking to that final day as our hope, we're going to get, we're going to get lost in the culture. So here's the question you've got to ask. What day are you living for? For Paul, he was living for that day. The day when I see Jesus face to face. But I'm afraid many Christians are not living for that day. They're living for this day. The comfort of this day, the applause of men. I'm living in fear of men. I'm living for the allurements of this day. I'm wrapped everything up in, in this day, in this world, and I'm not living for that final day. So the question is Paul was living for that final day. Are you living for that final day? And are you thoroughly convinced that God's able to get you to that day? Paul was convinced. But here's the final reality we see this in verses 13 and 14. Follow sound doctrine by holding fast to the gospel. Notice what Paul tells Timothy in verse 13. After all of this, I'm in in, in prison, Timothy. You're going to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. You're going to suffer for the gospel. Live for that day. God will sustain you. But in the meantime, it's important, it's imperative, Timothy, verse 13, that you follow the pattern of sound words. You follow sound doctrine. You hold fast to good teaching. You hold fast to the truth of Scripture. And this is where we're going to suffer the most, I think, for holding fast to sound doctrine. Holding fast to sound doctrine is not going to be popular in the coming days because here's what the world already thinks of us. The world thinks that we're archaic. The world thinks that we're morons. The world thinks that we're jerks. The world thinks that we're offensive, that we're bigots, that we're hate mongers, that we're unenlightened. The world thinks all these things about us. And some of them may be true. And there's going to be a great temptation to say, you know what? Let's just kind of compromise on some of the things this Bible says. Yeah, I know the Bible says it. And I know God is sovereign and he's authoritative. And I know it's in the Bible. But we don't really have to talk about it, do we? We don't really have to be that strong on it. We can kind of bend it, because after all, that's what, that's apply, that applied to them back then, but that doesn't apply to us today. So we can, kind of, we can kind of waffle on that. Churches and Christians are doing this every day. Every day I'm hearing of another quote-unquote evangelical leader who's abandoning the faith. Every day I see it on Twitter. Every day I see it on Facebook. Every day I'm seeing somebody waffling on the gospel to me, one of the tragic ones recently is, is a guy named Rob Bell. Some of you may know who Rob Bell was, or is, he's still alive. Um, about 15 years ago, when I was a youth pastor, uh, he came out with these, new, they were called NUMA videos. And we used to watch these NUMA videos, and they were solid. They were solid videos. He was the pastor of a megachurch in Michigan, a solid, conservative, evangelical Bible church in Michigan. He started writing books where his views started coming out. And just a few years ago, he wrote a book called Love Wins. And in this book, he began to question whether hell was real, whether Jesus is the only way of salvation. And his church got concerned, and the church asked him to leave. So he's not a pastor anymore at that church. Now he travels with Oprah, and he's on the Oprah network And he's teaching all types of weird things. And you can go on the Oprah channel and watch him teaching these weird things. But just 15 years ago, you would say, I would go to his church because he's a Bible-believing pastor that preaches the truth. And here, 15 years later, he's gone off the deep end. So let me give you a warning. Some of the popular teachers you listen to right now on podcast or or on YouTube or whatever, I'm not saying it may happen, but it may. They may go off the deep end just because they're on the radio, just because they have a television ministry, they may go off the deep end. And how they go off the deep end is they begin to say, I'm not going to believe what this word says. I'm going to waffle. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 what's going to happen. Listen to what he says. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Are we not seeing that in our day and age today? And I'm very concerned for our children and youth who are growing up in this culture. So parents, are you equipping your children? Are you equipping your children to follow sound doctrine? Are you equipping your children to know what they believe and why? Are you equipping your children to hold fast to this word? Because the culture is going to come and just sweep it right under their feet if you don't give them that foundation now. So Paul says, hold fast to sound doctrine. And then in verse 14, notice what he says By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, take care of, hold fast to the good deposit entrusted to you. What's the good deposit? In the context of what Paul's talking about, the good deposits the gospel. And and Paul says to Timothy, guard that. Hold fast to that. Never abandon the gospel. Never abandon the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Never let it go. Live by it. Believe it. Breathe it. Drink it. Sleep it. Go to bed with it at night. Hold fast to the gospel. Martin Luther, again, in his Galatians commentary, I'll paraphrase He basically says the gospel is the most important thing that we can ever believe as Christians. And daily, he says, I've got to remind myself of the gospel. I've got to believe the gospel. I've got to believe what Jesus did for me. I've got to preach the gospel to myself. And this is his famous words. He says, I've got to beat it into my head continually. And I need to beat it into others' heads continually. One of my goals as your pastor over these past 10 years is to beat into your heads the gospel. And some of you may be sick of it, like I'm up to my eyeballs in the gospel. Never get sick of the gospel. We need to have our heads beaten with the gospel continually so that we can guard it, we can love it, we can hold fast to it. It's the the treasure that God's entrusted to us. Now this is where it comes full circle. Because what did it start with? Go back to verse 7. God did not give us a spirit of fear. Now the Holy Spirit gives us power. Power. The Holy Spirit gives us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. So it starts with the Holy Spirit. How does Paul end it here in verse 14? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who gives us the power to not be ashamed of the gospel, the Holy Spirit. And Paul says here the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So the good news of the gospel is that God has sent the Holy Spirit not just to kind of hover over us, not just to kind of come upon us from time to time like he did in the Old Testament, but to actually live within us to indwell inside of us, to give us the daily, the moment-by-moment moment power to live it out. And Jesus promised that. Jesus promised that we would have the Holy Spirit come live in us. And the only way we can face the days ahead as a church is by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, as Paul says here. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 16-17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for, what's he gonna do? He dwells with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit of truth will dwell in you. He will be with you. He will give you the power. In John 16, 13, Jesus says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you, the things that are to come. Here's the truth. If you hold fast to the gospel, you're going to suffer. You will suffer in this culture if you hold fast to the gospel. And the converse is true. If you're not suffering for the gospel, you're probably not holding fast to the gospel. You probably have a different gospel or a watered-down gospel. And there are going to be temptations right and left for us to be ashamed of the gospel, to give in to the culture, to back down, to soft pedal, to water it down. And this is where we as a church and we as individuals desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about here. The Holy Spirit's going to give you power. The Holy Spirit's going to make sure you you sustain to the end. The Holy Spirit's going to give you confidence. He's not going to give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. He's going to give you the strength and the faith to stand strong in temptation. He's going to give you the faith to hold fast to that day. He's going to give you the faith to hold fast to sound doctrine. And He's going to give you the the, the strength and and the power to guard the good deposit that's given to you. The Holy Spirit's indispensable in what we've got going forward as a church. We need the Holy Spirit. We need him desperately to give us the power to stand strong in the days to come. And so here's the final question for you this morning. Are you ashamed of the gospel? And you may say, well, Pastor Sean, that's a weird question. I would never be ashamed of the gospel. But here's where the rubber meets the road. When you walk out this room and you go face the culture and you go to work or you go into the world, ask the question, Do I really fully believe in the absolute truth of God's word and in the gospel in every aspect of my life, or am I ashamed? I I heard a quote from Tim Keller the other day, and this is what he said. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you don't really need to listen to anything he said. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, you need to believe every word he said are you a Christian than to walk out of here and say I believe every word the risen Christ has said and I'm not ashamed of the gospel let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and just ask that question to yourself am I ashamed am I holding back am I embarrassed by Jesus am I embarrassed by the Bible am I timid am I timid Am I fearful, or am I holding fast to the good deposit that God has entrusted to you and to me? Would you spend some time in prayer this morning? Before you this morning, and the first thing we want to admit is that we need you, Jesus, every day. Every moment. We have never arrived. We have sin in our life every day. And we need the gospel. We need to be reminded every day, Jesus, that you've saved us, not because of the things we've done, but because of your good grace and purpose. You've showered us with the Holy Spirit to live in us, to give us strength and to give us power. And Lord, we need to confess our weakness. We need to confess those times when we're tempted to to waffle on the gospel, when we're tempted not to stand strong, when we're tempted to be timid, when we're tempted to back down. So Father, give us wisdom to know how to do it with love. Give us wisdom to know how to do it with respect and gentleness. Lord, my biggest concern is for this younger generation growing up in this culture. My biggest fear is that they're going to accumulate for them. Teachers, they'll give what their itching ears want to hear to suit their own passions and not the truth of God's word. So, Father, first, would you give parents in this room courage to equip their children? And, Father, I pray for our children and youth and even our college students that are going off at university in places where they'll be exposed to different worldviews. Father, would you just give, give them strength, give them wisdom, Father, help us as a church to be kind, to be loving, but also to be truthful and to stand where you stand on these issues. Not to be mean, not to be um, rude. Lord, to lovingly and humbly stand for truth, knowing that if it were not for your grace in our lives, we'd all be just as lost. So Father, in the coming days, give us wisdom Give us encouragement. Let us know deep in our hearts like Paul did. I'm convinced. I know whom I believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard that which I've entrusted to him to that final day. Jesus, we live for that day. We live for the day that we see you And hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. May we be a church that's faithful. May we be people that are faithful. May we hold fast to the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.